Hello, this is Ryan Singer. You are listening to PF's Tape Recorder. Hello there, I'm PF. This is my tape recorder. Coming up, it's our old friend Mark Shalafu. I bombed so hard on that <laughs> first show. So hard. And it was good for me because I didn't know enough to realize how much I bombed. I thought I did good because people were smiling at me. I was like, oh wow, these people are into this. You may remember Mark from my old podcast. If you've been with me that long, I did the uh, Fantasy Football Podcast. Mark was a frequent guest on that. He's been on this show before as well. The big news in Mark's life and career, he's releasing his first comedy CD this Friday, which will be August 17th. So we'll talk to him about that and uh, his road to recording that uh, comedy album. And I get to be lazy this week. Instead of a dumb bit, you get to hear a cut from Mark's new album. So let's start with that. I've been trying to go back to the gym more. It's hard to stay motivated for that, though. Like, I walked into the gym once, and right away just saw a huge bro that had this T-shirt on. Just said, my warm-up is tougher than your workout. I was like, ugh, he's right, and I left. (laughs) I have not been back to the gym since. Now, my friend, he told me that uh, he can't work out unless there's a hot chick on the machine in front of him. He said that she's like the carrot at the end of the stick. I was like, okay, you psychopath. You can't exercise unless you think you're chasing a woman? At least tell the woman so she has new motivation for her workout. Now, it's easy for me to see why my friend is a lunatic, because I am a feminist, 100%. Me and two people, that's how it usually goes. It's not the most popular stance, but it's one that I find myself in because I have a wife and two young daughters. So it's like, of course, I'm going to defend women's rights when I own three of them. Okay, most of you remember this is a comedy show. Good. Good. That joke is always slid in there as like a test to see who's here for jokes and who's here for outrage. Most of you passed. We do have two young daughters, and uh, when our second was born, all of our friends gave us the same piece of advice. They said, treat both kids exactly the same. But you don't do that. Even, I feel like even subconsciously, You treat your first kid the way that you would treat a package that you marked fragile. And you treat your second kid like how the UPS would treat that package. You're like, just throw it on the truck. We have more packages. Let's get to lunch. Treat them the same. We learned that we couldn't do that just even in the process that we used to pick out their names. Our first daughter, she was born in New York City at a hospital on Madison Avenue, and we named her Madison. That's cute. Our second daughter, she was born in Ohio at a hospital on Dick Smith Avenue. Yeah. That's gonna be a weird first day of school for little Dick Smith. Dick Smith, that doesn't sound like a cute name for your daughter. 
Dick Smith just sounds like someone that sells sex toys at a Renaissance fair or something. It's not gonna work. Yeah, treat them the same. Even the milestones feel different the second time. Like the first time my wife told me she was pregnant, it was like this big emotional dinner, it was awesome. The second time she told me she was pregnant, it was just in a text message. She just sent me a picture of a positive pregnancy test. I remember looking at that just thinking like, wow, I really hope she meant to send this to somebody else. But that was our little Dick Smith, so here we are. Here we are. She is a tough kid too. And I learned this before she was born, because the first ultrasound, she started out as twins. Second ultrasound, she was not twins anymore. <laughs> and when she was born, she had a tiny teardrop tattoo under her eye. <laughs> That's how you know you don't mess with Dick Smith. <laughs> that kid means business. Mark Shalhoub was a stand-up comedian from Cincinnati, Ohio, spent some time in New York City, is now back based in Cincinnati, headlining clubs around the Midwest and uh, other parts of the country as well. Here now is our interview with Mark Shalhoub. Hi, this is Mark. Hey, Mark, it's BF. Hey, how you doing, man? Good, man. How's it going? Not too bad. Good, good. Uh, you missed your mom in it today? Um, a little bit. I'm also, um, you know, just kind of getting things done. So uh, the mother-in-law's with the kids at the moment as I bang out a few things. All right. Writing projects and stuff, kind of getting some uh, ducks in the row for the CD release. Cool. So what's the official release date? August 17th. August 17th, Big right. release. Cool. Um, so I, I know we've discussed this uh, before on the show probably years ago, but i kind of forgotten the whole arc of, um, you know, I know you're from here, obviously, and uh, went to school, had an interest kind of in, in journalism and uh, in sports and things like that. But where did the, the comedy start to come into that? For me, it was actually uh, when I was in college, took a college uh, girlfriend to New York for a weekend. It was a fun little trip for us. And we had already had tickets for a Broadway show. We weren't sure what we were doing with our Friday night. And there was a Barker in Times Square that was trying to get us to buy tickets to a show at the Comic Strip Live on the Upper East Side. And it's, you know, one of the oldest comedy clubs in the country. It's a famous club where Jerry Seinfeld got its start. And Chris Rock used to wait tables for stage time. Eddie Murphy did a special there. You know, all this kind of uh, lore and legends and stuff. So he sold us on that. That was my first time ever seeing live comedy. And for us, part of the reason we agreed to it was because he told us that there was a nice bar right nearby where we could get drinks without being carded because my girlfriend, huh. uh, now wife, was only 20. So we were able to go for pre-show drinks and uh, not worry about that. Where at the comedy club, she could not drink and I could. So, you know, it was part of the allure in New York was finding that uh, cheap spot to get drinks as kids. So then going to the show, I kind of, that was my first taste of seeing live comedy. I just turned 21, so you can't really go to a lot of clubs. 
usually until you're 21 or at least 18. So seeing that kind of really opened my eyes to it and kind of put that spark in me. And it was something that, um, you know, like a lot of comics, you don't know how to start. There's not like a playbook. I was in school for journalism. There's more of a path for that. You know, I start here. I, I get my clips. I work in a smaller market. I work my way up. And my work is kind of my chip in the door. With comedy, you don't quite know how to approach it. So it's something I was interested in right away. I started writing jokes on the back of some religious pamphlet that some uh, lunatic had given us on the street. And, you know, the jokes were terrible, but the, the hooks were sunk in me at that point. So for me, and then I kind of went the journalism route and did the whole newspaper reporter, radio producer, that sort of thing. And it was when I was working at 1530 in Cincinnati, the big sports station, and uh, Josh Sneed was a regular guest for us. And so having somebody that was a comedian based in Cincinnati who had been on Comedy Central, I was like, oh, this is huge. I didn't even know that type of person existed. You know, he had a Comedy Central special. I thought, like, wow, this guy's a celebrity because you don't quite know how to, to, to put that on the scale of things when you're a newbie. So him coming on the show, I kind of revealed to him at one point that I was a fan of stand-up and, you know, wanted to try my hand at it. And he was very encouraging, and he kind of got me off of that um, – spot where so many people get crippled where they're like, I want to try it. I don't know how. I just, you know, I write a bunch of material. I just can't really give it a shot. Uh, who knows how it works. So having him to kind of guide me into it and I bombed so hard on that <laughs> first show. So hard. And it was good for me because I didn't know enough to realize how much I bombed. I thought I did good because people were smiling at me. I was like, oh wow, these people are into this. Um, <laughs> So it would have been so easy for Josh to be like, yeah, you're a really funny guy, you're a smart writer, you're good on radio, maybe this isn't quite your thing, and that would have been it. I yeah. never would have gone on stage again. But he was so encouraging after that first time, telling me to stay at it, and like, you know, there was some good stuff to build on, and good structure and things. He wasn't like, oh, that, that sucks, even though it sucks. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, it sucks. Um, but because he was so encouraging, that kind of kept me working towards that path, and I quickly, you know, got a little bit better and, you know, became passable on stage and some of my first opportunities came from him and, you know, so that was so influential for me to kind of get my footing in the scene, start to work at Go Bananas a little bit as a host so you learn from other comics that are ahead of you on, on the pecking order, you start to learn from other headliners and then after the first year and a half or so is when I moved to New York. There was a little bit of a Cincinnati to New York exodus at the time so I went with a few other younger guys and Dave Waite, who was a little bit more established. So, you know, we all kind of went out there within a few months of each other. So it was nice to have that foothold out uh, east, if you will. And uh, it was in New York where I really just dove into it. You know, it's such an exciting time for comics to just be grinding out these terrible open mics at 5 p.m., 6 p.m. in a basement comedy club where there is no audience except for the other people that have signed up to go on. It's a very, it's, it's a tough life, but you're so full of hope and excited and, you know, you're running around doing some of the worst shows, but you're also seeing some of the best comedy in the world. You're seeing people dropping at clubs that are superstars and they fill out arenas. You know, I remember, you know, being at a bar show where, you know, one of my friends went up right before Jimmy Gaffigan and it's like he's performing for the same seven people we all just performed for. And so that was kind of like a really enthralling, exciting environment to be in where you're focused. You've got your group of people who are also funny and you're all early running around the mics together. You're, you're, you're scarfing down your dollar pizza. And, uh, it's such an exciting time too, because for me being in New York, you know, you don't, you, 
necessarily wouldn't go around everywhere. You know, you might have your favorite neighborhoods or what you like to do. But when you do stand-up, there are different open mics, different shows you get booked on that's going to pull you to every part of that city that you never would have gone to. You know, you're going to Soho to do a show in an apartment somewhere, and then you're walking through Chinatown to go to another mic, and then you might have a show up in Harlem. You wouldn't have gone out of your way to go to Harlem or Staten Island. Who wants to go to Staten Island? Nobody wants to go to Staten Island. But, uh, you know, you really get to see so much of the city just by doing comedy in all these different nooks and crannies. You know, and uh, it was great because you would get exposed to so many different audiences. Once I finally got passed in a few clubs, that was huge for me. It was such a, a big turning point for me. And, um, you know, you start to, to learn how to get your feet under you, how to deal with a club audience. Um, you get a lot of tourists at those clubs, too. So you also then start to get booked on the non-traditional shows that have more of just the, the people that live and work in New York come out to those. And, you know, maybe more like students, like NYU kids, and you kind of learn how to perform for that. So you can do a show at a club for a bunch of tourists and maybe some international tourists, and you get in a cab and you go down to UCB doing shows for young, smart, creative, hip kids. And then you go to the back room of a bar on the Lower East Side, and you're performing for, you know, whatever derelicts are kind of coming through there at that time. And it's just such a, a huge, it's like going to comedy college is how a friend described it once. And it is. It's a big download. It's a tough environment. It's a real sink or swim type thing. But uh, I loved it. And that's where I grew as a comic the most. And you know, that's what I kind of owe a lot of my development to, a lot of my sensibilities with how I approach writing, how I support, approach performing, kind of comes from that New York background. And but then I ultimately moved back to the Midwest and kind of had the chops and experience. So I started working a lot more in the region. And then, you know, you work your way up to a headliner. And, you know, you do little festivals here and there, and you get little milestones that you really hang on to that mean a lot to you that kind of help propel you through the bad shows and the hell gigs and things like that. So I'm curious about um, when you're in New York, so I know we don't really have that experience here with, because our, our, our main open mic, uh, you know, it's, it's a bringer show, so it's not just comics sitting in the crowd. It's probably the audience actually outnumbers the comics because everybody has to bring at least five. Uh, when it's just comics, how how much of a case is it of where you're sitting there on the one hand thinking, oh, because, I mean, we do this at ours, too. You, you know, when you watch the other comics, you're like, wow, that guy is, you know, my jokes are way better than that guy or gals. And on the other hand, you watch someone else go up and you're like, I'm going to quit comedy now. I'll never be that funny. And they're, it seems so effortless for And I know people are at different stages of development, certainly. But, I mean, what's kind of the, or do you just not think about that and just concentrate, like Marvin Lewis says, just, you know, tend your own garden? No, I think it is. You kind of see that more with your friend group. So you're in a group of people that are motivated. So on an open mic, the five of you might be going up and you might get, you know, another six, seven guys that are into it. And you might get 12 total lunatics off the street. We're doing like really hacky, gross jokes. So it can be tough because you're seeing some of the worst comedy, but you're also exposed to some really good comedy. And it's very challenging to do a room with just all comics. Because if you're, if I hadn't had a couple of years of developing in front of real people in Cincinnati first, you learn how to write a joke, how to tell a joke. In New York, you would see guys that would start and they had no choice but to try and do what gets glass. So what gets glass in an all comic mic is writing jokes that appeal to the back of the room. So you would have these guys that were real like shocking with their stuff. And yeah, it's funny to us comics because we're used to seeing people kind of doing the stuff that audiences want. So. When you get somebody that's just totally insane, yeah, we're going to laugh at that because it's different, it's completely outrageous, that sort of thing. But then those comics would try and do that material somewhere else and they would just 
completely die with it. So for us, we would have to try and find little tricks. We would find like open mics that allowed comedy and musicians because musicians were more like regular people. They would like stand up and improv. The improv kids were so excited and happy go lucky because they only do it once a week or twice a week that you know they were like having a real audience. So you kind of have to be discerning with like, all right, I'm not going to judge this too harshly. It's totally bomb. You know, and if I do get some laughs, you have to think, all right, well, is this because it was just written in the back of the room or do they respect kind of the craft or, or what I was going for here? Or maybe it just kind of connected with them. It's just people because it was an authentic good line you came up with. So, you know, you have to be cognizant of the audience, but also, you know, totally not abandon your stuff if it doesn't go perfectly. And um, you have to find what works for you. Some of those open mics don't work for everybody. And, you know, you kind of have to find the pace that works for you and find what's going to help you develop material the best and kind of just stay at it. So uh, after, you know, coming back here and kind of working your way up a little bit more and, you know, doing the featuring and headlining, where does the decision come in to say, yes, I'm, it's time to record a CD? For me, it was a couple things. You know, I just have always loved that idea of, you know, the comedy album, you know, telling jokes in a nightclub. And uh, it was very appealing to me to do that. That was always a goal. Um, for me, it came at a time where I was starting to transition as a comic. You know, you get to that point. A lot of guys record five, six years in, and I didn't want to do that because I've heard from people that do that that they end up regretting their first CD because they were too quick to, to pull the trigger. Um, and, you know, I've heard people say, you wait until they come to you or you feel like you have to and waiting the longer the better. So I got around to like nine years in where I was like, all right, this is starting to feel like I'm transitioning out of some of the material that I liked and that really worked, but, um, you know, didn't feel quite as authentic to where I was in life anymore. And especially having young kids that generates a lot of material. So I was starting to kind of transition into what I was talking about and what was important to me, but I still had a lot of this material that, you know, I uh, I really loved the jokes, and I kind of, you know, wanted to get that recorded and put that hour of material out into the world, because it was really emblematic of who I was as a comic. It kind of tells my story, my introduction to the comedy world. If you're not familiar with me, you can listen to the album and kind of hear my growth as a person and my kind of evolution and, you know, some of the jokes that uh, I've worked on. Some of them were, you know, only months old at, at the taping. And, you know, some of those were also born in the back rooms of bars in New York and jokes that I developed, at, you know, talking to 15 people at a comedy club on the Upper East Side on a Monday night. And, you know, jokes that have been honed for a while. And, you know, I, I was really proud of how the material came together. So I, I wanted to do it at that point. And Rooftop had come to me about um, kind of raising that possibility and kind of, you know, asking about another opportunity too. So, but that kind of came to me at a point where I was looking to record, and so it kind of just felt like it was, you know, uh, it was the best route to take since they were uh, showed some interest, and I was already interested in kind of doing that at that time. So I didn't even do an exhaustive search of like what's going to be the best for me. I kind of went with the people that were had an interest in working with me and have a history of working with the club that I wanted to record at. And so that's kind of how it came together. So a lot of guys and gals, will, there's different motivations, there's different ways they approach doing the, the CD, particularly the, the first CD. Uh, and a lot of people want to, you know, close the chapter on their career and say, oh, I'm going to retire these jokes and that's, this will be, you know, that, that part of my career. Others are, you know, want to just have some sound out there for people to listen to, to be like, when they come to a town, be like, oh, I, this guy is, is funny, you know, apart from the random YouTube clip, which may or may not exist. 
So what did you have any kind of like a, a, a marketing strategy in mind with this? Um, you know, I've always been a comic that struggled to sell merch. Like I've never been a very merch-minded guy. Of like, hey, I'm going to sell koozies. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I never wanted to sell T-shirts because then you have to bring a suitcase of so many different sizes. You have to do the joke in your act every time. Yep. <laughs> uh, you know, that, I didn't want to be married to that, and I was middling a lot anyway. So you're not always selling a, a whole ton if the headliner doesn't want you to or whatever. But then I would start the headline, and I was like, well, I could be selling something. So I would do posters for a while and kind of sell the posters, a pay-what-you-want type thing. And, um, you know, I, I told myself the thing that I would be proud to sell is a, a record. If I had an album, then, yeah, I have no trouble selling that. I wouldn't feel cheesy about that because I was just performing stand-up comedy. So if they liked me, they would, you know, if they want more of me, that's how they get it. Um, that seemed like a logical thing. So from that standpoint, I was like, that's the only thing I ever wanted to sell if I did sell merch would be an album. Um, you know, I kind of also wanted to have that out there to show that I could do it and I could put it out there and I had that material. You know, you get to a point too where you feel ready to do that. And I remember, you know, one of the earlier headlining weeks I got, somebody's like, oh, you should record it. You know, this could be your album. You, you have a whole weekend, you should record it. And I was like, well, this is one of the first headlining weeks I've had. That seems like a terrible idea. Because I know guys that are features that are like, oh, I'm going to do an hour now. And it's like, really? You're just going to record your first ever headlining set? That, that seems crazy. Um, and I look back now at my first headlining week and I'm like, well, that was, you know, there's some real good stuff there. But if that was my record and what I put out into the world, I'd be, you know, not as thrilled with it. So I kind of took that material, shaped it more, toured it pretty heavily for six months and, you know, once I, I had signed a deal too, that was a real good motivator. Like, okay, well now I know I've got this much time to work on it. Let's try and do as many dates as I can. Let's try and work on the, the stories that I really want to tell. What are the jokes I want to share with people? Now let's take it across the country and really hammer it out. So I'm proud of the final product. And it's not, hey, somebody gave me an hour, so I recorded it. It's, you know, this was the goal. This is what I was working on. It uh, worked on it in a lot of different places. So are you uh, mostly these days uh, featuring headlining around the Midwest? Are you getting to other parts of the country, maybe back to New York, maybe the West Coast? Yeah, on occasion I still go to, uh, I'll, you know, do like a New York or Eastern ride. Uh, I do a lot of Midwest because it's the easiest, you know. If I can go to like a Chicago, Indianapolis, uh, Lexington's a fun city, Bloomington, Indiana. I love the club there, the scene there. Uh, St. Louis, I really like the club there. Um, you know, Dayton, I've always had a great reception in Dayton. Uh, a lot of positive things there. So Love Dayton. You know, for me, uh, what? Love Dayton. Dayton's such a great yeah. place. It's so you underrated. Really expect it. I think it's the most underrated place in the Midwest. It really is. So few people say, I love Dayton, that, you know, hearing another person say, like, oh, wait. Well, really? Okay, yeah, I, I like it too. I used to work up there. Um, it was a long drive, but it was worth it. Uh, love the job I did, even though I knew it wasn't going to last. It was for, uh, the folks that do, um, uh, planners and the trapper keepers and those folks it used to be mead but then they got buzzed. so you know it's a dying industry but great folks to work with we go shopping up there a lot you know it's just far enough away that it's different but it's not so far that it's you know it's a you know, horrific drive back to Cincinnati so yeah totally and then I've also started to go a little bit more you know south I really love Asheville I've played there oh know, we were just there times or so it's, it's a great town I love it yeah. Love the festival. I love the rooms that there's a few, um, you know, independent rooms there. Funny Business has a room there that I, I liked, and there's a, a girl that runs a great room that I did mm-hmm. while I was getting the hour in shape. Um, you know, if I'm going down to Asheville, I'll usually throw an Atlanta into the mix. I love Atlanta. As yeah. Well. The crowds there are so great. 
Another great the town. The club is great. Um, you know, they've, they've got a good old team as well. So I've never had a bad experience going to Atlanta. Um, you know, so yeah, getting down to Georgia, some of the Carolinas and in like, you know, like DC and, um, you know, a little bit of Virginia and that kind of stuff. And on occasion, I'll still do a New York or a Boston, but not as much as I did, obviously, when I lived in the Northeast. So once the, the CD comes out, what's the, the plan from there? Hopefully get some play on Sirius and places like that where they still, you know, play uh, comedy audio. But what, uh, what else happens from there? What, what's next? So from there, what happens is it captivates the attention of the country. And I fall into in the hearts and minds of people everywhere. I become adored. I become a sensation. I start touring theaters and arenas and live a very posh, comfortable lifestyle. You know, in an ideal world. There you have it. Uh, more realistically, it's it's nice because it's gonna it's my debut album, so I do think there's a little bit of significance to that. It's like, hey, you know, I worked hard at this for nine, ten years. This is the first full product I'm putting out into the world. You know, done had little opportunities here and there, or little TV snippets, or like a joke that was featured on a website or in a magazine or something, and that recognition is nice. Or a YouTube clip that gets a lot of views is nice, but that there's no permanency to that. This is the first time I'm putting out something, you know, a little bit more traditional, like, hey, here's who I am as a comic. Here's what I've done. So that, it's a real nice feather in the cap. It's something you control. It's not something where, you know, I was put as the comedian on this weird daytime TV show, or I was, you know, on a roast battle, so I had to be really mean to my friends, and that was my huh. only exposure to people. You kind of control what you're putting out. And well, that's true. So you take a lot more ownership in that. So I think that's why it's a little bit more significant, a lot more personal. So for me, I'm just really interested in kind of getting it out, making people aware of it, making people aware of me. Because I'm sure it'll be the first exposure a lot of people have with me is, you know, maybe they see somebody else tweet about the CD and kind of check me out. Maybe it's, you know, hearing a track on Sirius XM or on Spotify or Pandora, one of those things. So it'll be kind of my introduction to a lot of people and places or even countries that I don't go to. So, you know, I was very cognizant of that. It's like, all right, this is going to be my first big push into a lot of places that I haven't been. So, you know, I want to get that out there. And then next steps for me is still kind of doing, you know, what a comic does. It's not going to be a life-changing thing where it completely resets the table in either direction where I'm like, I did this, I'm done, or... You know, I did this, now I'm famous. You still kind of have to go back and, you know, start at square one. Now I'm going to build my next thing. It's like, you know, what what do I want to say to people now? You got to start writing new jokes. And, you know, maybe it'll lead to some better opportunities touring, but you still got to get on the road and, and do the job of telling the jokes to people. And, you know, I think it gives me a little bit more credibility as a comic to say, I've got this hour that's, you know, pretty clean and, um, you know, well-crafted. So it's a good resume builder. So, um, you know, that's important. It kind of might help you as you're trying to, like, you know, get some other projects done or do a few different things. But uh, I'm also excited just to get back on the road and tell more jokes to people and kind of build up some more material. And, you know, I'm not a guy that's going to turn out a special every year or or whatever, so I'm not like in a rush to get back into a recording situation, but it is fun, because for so long I was so focused on this, you know, so you're kind of really pouring over listening to your sets, you're making notes, you're constantly, you know, improving jokes, so now it's kind of fun to have a little bit of a period where you're just, you're just doing comedy, you're just doing the thing that you love, which is just kind of a lot less pressure to go out and, 
you know, put on a good show for people, but at the same time, you're not killing yourself if you didn't say one word right or if you forgot the one line you were trying to do. Um, so it's a very fun place to be in. And, uh, you know, I'm still excited for the future because I'm still very optimistic and bullish on the future of comedy, despite what some people might be saying these days. Um, yeah, so I'm just kind of, next steps for me is just kind of continuing to put my voice out there and connect with people. Cool, man. Well, uh, glad things are going well for you then, and uh, looking forward to the release of the, the CD. And uh, I'll get the article sorted and everything for that as well. Um, Do you need anything else for that? Uh, not at the moment. I'll email you if I do, of course, Great. and let you know. But I think we're in pretty good shape. I'm going to update my editor after the interview here. Um, I'll use the audio for this for the podcast, if you don't mind, because I'm uh, yeah. so busy. I'm desperate for uh, material. Not that, not that <laughs> it's desperation having Mark Shalafuan. You've been on many times before. And, uh, always, and oh, and um, we're trying to get um, it sorted so we can... Uh, are you going to be at Brouhaha? I will. We're trying to get it arranged so we can, like, maybe do a Cincy Shirts podcast live there. Uh, and I asked Mikey about it, like, months ago, and he never answered. So I was pestering him again yesterday. And he goes, well, now there's not much time. And I'm like, well, dude, then why didn't you answer before? So somehow we'll figure something. If it, it means we have to invite people by the, the actual booth and record there, uh, we'll do that. But I'll keep you posted. I, I want to talk to, you know, like, some of the local guys. Yeah. Uh, in any I mean, case. the best route to go, I think, would be if he doesn't give you an official time and space, you know, you could always lean on Snee to kind of get that done, but or well, like you said, if you're going to do it from the booth, just show up early. Exactly. Before there's really a crowd, and you could definitely bang out a or just, podcast. And or just tell people to, just tell people to stop by the booth, you know, because we have a we have portable recording equipment we can use too, which worked really well at Bunbury. So uh, I have a couple of ideas for this, but um, yeah, I think we're definitely going to be doing a, a brouhaha episode for the Shirts Podcast as well. So. Awesome. Yeah. That's great. Great, man. Well, I'll keep you posted on all that. Thanks, man. Have a good day. Yeah, no problem. I'll talk to you. Right. Bye. Thanks again to Mark Shalafu for being on the show. Uh, I'm not sure where you can catch Mark uh, coming up soon, but if you go to markshalafu.com, and Shalafu is C H A. L-I-F-O-U-X, uh, MarkShalafu.com. You can uh, find out where he's going to be soon enough, I'm sure. You can also follow him on all, all the uh, social media channels, of course, and his website can direct you to all of those. Uh, and, of course, be sure to get the CD. Uh, of course, it helps if you get the physical CD, which the easiest way to get that is through Amazon. It's on Rooftop Records, but uh, Audible bought Rooftop, and then... Uh, well, Audible was bought first by Amazon, and then in turn, Audible bought Rooftop. It's all very confusing. Just go to Amazon, and, and there you have it. I wish I had one of those affiliate links. I could get a couple of couple of cents out of this as well. But that's how you do that. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you'll be able to listen on Spotify and things like that. But, you know, it's it's better for Mark, of course, if you actually buy a physical CD. Uh, all right, so any, or do a download. That's a, as handy as well, and I'm sure it'll be in iTunes and all that. Uh, this Friday, August 17th. So it brings us to the song of the week. Uh, this one's been out a couple of weeks. I kind of forgot about it, and um, it's weird because we went and saw these guys a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Pixies was the opening act. Of course, it's Weezer, and boy, uh, they smashed it. And uh, now the one song they did, uh, Island in the Sun, 
they did acoustically. And if you have a chance, go to YouTube, look up Island in the Sun Acoustic, and you should see someone posted uh, it from Chicago. And I know we hate when people record songs, but this person did a pretty good job. And if you weren't at the show, you have no other way of seeing this, and it's really cool. Uh, of course, Lizzie hated it because she wanted the electric version, but me, an acoustic version of Island in the Sun with audience sing-along, holy cow, that may be one of my favorite live performances ever of a single song, so do check that out. But in the meantime, of course, the big single so far this summer for Weezer has been their cover of Africa, which they did at the behest of someone on Twitter, and just this past Friday, of course, uh, Toto released a cover of Hashpipe, which is okay, but um, I thought for Song of the Week, you know, just kind of like, you know... Uh, say thanks to Weezer for a great show uh, back uh, last month here in Cincinnati. We'll do Africa as our song of the week. So uh, here you go. Your song of the week is Africa by Weezer. PS Tape Recorder. So long and thanks for listening. I hear the drums echoing tonight But she 